Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people to dreams to adult people living those dreams or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Tara Schuster was a 25-year-old working at Comedy Central who worked her way up from interning at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart to curating jokes.com when she hit an emotional rock bottom. She then began learning how to reparent herself, which she turned into her first book, Buy Yourself the Effing Lilies. She did that while rising to become a vice president of talent and development in Comedy Central, working on such shows as the Emmy and Peabody award-winning Key and Peele, Emmy-winning At Midnight, Another Period, Detroiters, Hood Adjacent, and Lights Out with David Spade. When the pandemic hit and Comedy Central imploded, taking Schuster's job with it, she found she needed to do some more work healing herself. That's the focus of her second book, Glow in the Effing Dark. Schuster sat down with me to talk about her transition from comedy executive to self-care expert and about how the work of healing is never truly finished. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Mara Schuster, last things first, congratulations on your second book, Glow in the Fucking Dark. Thank you, thank you, Sean, I appreciate it. And you wrote in my book, you uh, inscribed that I know the actual truth. <laughs> well, you, so I talk a lot about, um, comedy or not a lot, but I obviously that's where my career started. But I'm usually talking to audiences who don't know anything about TV or comedy in particular. So yeah, you know where the bodies are buried. You know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I do. And you mentioned, uh, social media, social media, social media, uh, a little bit in the book. And as it happens today, Facebook was kind enough to remind me uh, in Facebook memories on on this day in 2018, I was uh, moderating a panel for Comedy Central at South by Southwest with with Kent Alterman and Jonathan Mayers to talk about the first to talk about the first Clusterfest. Oh, which I thought which I thought was kind of bizarre. At the time, not just that, not that Comedy Central would ask me to moderate this, but that we were talking at South by Southwest about a competing festival. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That brings back memories. Yeah. But then I thought, well, when did I meet Tara Schuster first? And it turns out I met you at Chess for Laughs in Montreal. Okay. In, in July of 2015. I'd, wow. like to, I'd like to thank Bart Coleman for making that happen. Oh, Bart. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. I love Bart. Yeah, because that was the time of uh, At Midnight. Or it was definitely the time of Key and Peele. But I was I was crunching the numbers, crunching the math. And if I'm, if I'm doing this right, uh, you were four years removed from the, the brink, your emotional rock bottom that you talk about at age 25. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were starting to learn to reparent yourself. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that summer of 2015, that was also when you were going through the Emmy nomination, was it not? No, maybe. 
There's a huge <laughs> disclaimer at the front of the book. The very first thing I say is, I am not good with numbers, math, years. Nobody wants me to, you know, do the check at a restaurant. So I basically, right. I'm just like, I don't know. This all happened. I don't know exactly when. And I guess if I looked at Instagram, I'd be able to figure it out. But who has time? Who has time did, for these details? I did have to go back through like my iPhone camera roll to kind of piece yeah. it together myself. Yeah. But that was the year that Van and Mike received a digital nomination. So I figured mm. that must have been, um, not to put you on the spot, but mm. I, but I am curious to know what your life was like in July of 2015 when we met. Like, I only know my side of the story. Like I, that was the month that I started doing this podcast. Okay. I had just, got it. I had just put out my first couple episodes and bought external microphones the day before I left New York to go up to Montreal. Oh, funny. So I yeah. was just starting this. What were you doing in, in 2015? Uh, <laughs> it's a good question. I yeah. I think I was in, if I was going to Montreal, I was in development for sure. Um, so I was at Comedy Central working on developing shows and I had not pitched the book yet because I believe I pitched the book in 2016 to okay. Random House. So I was in this position where I really, I mean, I like Comedy Central was my home. You know, my first job ever was being an intern at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, which was amazing. And those connections led me to get my first job at Comedy Central, which was I was a PA for a website called Jokes.com. Jokes.com. Yeah. So all my friends were like, <laughs> mm-hmm. we work at McKinsey. We work at Goldman Sachs. And I was like, I work at Jokes.com. You know, it was <laughs> sort of like I remember I was once at a party where someone literally turned away from me when I said that. Like, cool. Bye. Um and so at that point, I was definitely exploring like what um, a development job uh, in Hollywood would be like. And I loved it. And I loved getting to go to things like Just for Laughs or get to meet these like epic, ama- amazing comedians and learn from them. And also amazing executives like, like Kent Alterman. Like he is one of the smartest, most artist friendly I don't know anybody who doesn't like Kent. Like, if you don't like Kent, then I'm like, that kind of reflects on you, not Kent, you know? Um, right. So at that, yeah, at that time, really purely like, okay, comedy is what I'm doing. So for those people who don't remember, look, can we just spend one or two more minutes on jokes.com? Oh, to, please. To, please. <laughs> deep cut, deep cut. <laughs> to remind people what that was. That, yeah. That was, was separate from Adam. Yes. So jokes.com was Mm -hmm. Comedy Central's stand-up portal. It later become became, I think, like, I think we changed the name to, like, Comedy Central stand-up or something. So it was basically, like, the Jeff Dunham special had just come out, and you would, on the homepage, you'd get a joke from him and then a little clip. Um, But there were also, you know, it was a cool time of, like, Maria Bamford was just getting getting big and um it was like really like kumail nanjiani was on the um, john oliver's stand-up show like it was a very lucky time for me to watch a ton of stand-up because that's all i did was watch stand-up videos then clip them like you know like how you watch a video on the internet that was my job was to do like the back end it was very lowly 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 job uh, and to, and I'm not good with like computers, so right. also very difficult for me. W- was there a time, 
maybe I'm just imagining this, but was there a time in the development of jokes.com where it actually strived to be or Comedy Central hoped that it would be a database for all the jokes? Yes, that's what the whole thing was. Yeah, for sure. So it was your job to then like go through like a Dave Attell special and go, okay, this is a joke about this. So it goes here and that. Wow. Yeah. And then it, and then at one point I was, um, uh, what do you call it? Like curating the homepage. So I was picking Mm -hmm. out like what the joke of the day was and what the clip of the day was and building like stand up profiles. I mean, I wonder if it still exists. That's uh, after this podcast, definitely going to be, but I was there for like three years at a minimum at jokes.com. So what did you think? So when we met, you were, you said you were still a year away from pitching by the fucking lilies. So before that, were you thinking that, oh, this is going to be my, the rest of my life is going to be not necessarily Comedy Central, but definitely being a producer, talent developer? Well, I had gone to college. I went to Brown for playwriting. Okay. And I thought I was going to be a playwright, actually. Um, until I moved to New York after graduating, I had a job at the public theater. I was like all in, like, uh, you know, worked for all these small theater companies in New York. Um, and then just very quickly realized, oh, this is a really hard living. Like nobody here has health insurance. Plays make zero dollars. Um, I have to pay my loans. Like, I don't know how this is going to possibly work. And a friend of mine who's also in the theater community had just interned at The Daily Show. So he recommended me to The Daily Show. He was like, it's a lot like theater. You know, it's TV shows are a lot like theater. So I had never thought that I was going to be in TV development. Like I had never thought that I was going to be a producer. I thought I was going to be a creator. Um, And then when I got to Comedy Central, I just really liked it. I liked it. I liked the people. I got such incredible access. I was learning so much um, that I stayed, but I kept doing shows in like the Fringe Festival or, you know, I submitted my shouts to The New Yorker. I, I just never gave up writing. Like okay. development, like Comedy Central was for sure my number one job, my number one priority. And I kept writing. Right. I've heard you talk before about how at a certain point Comedy Central felt like your family yeah. Like your hyphenated last name is Tara Schuster dash Comedy, Comedy Central. Central. Yeah. You had a shrewd uh, taste for, <laughs> for humor. I mean, you know, Key and Peel, Another Period, Detroiters, uh, Hood Adjacent. Um, yeah. You were working on great shows. Thank you. Yeah. I thought so. But it also means that, like, there were a few years at the, the last few years you were at Comedy Central you were balancing that with writing the first book. How did you balance that in your head? It was very interesting because the only time I could write was before work because first off, I just, I can only write in the morning first, like period, unless Mm -hmm. I'm really in a crunch time. So I just got up early um, and wrote before work. And that was really nice because it was like two different parts of my brain working, you know? So I wake up early, I'd write, then I'd go work out. And then I'd click in. That was like my like change gear shift and then go to the office. But they were very separate in my brain because it was too difficult. Like, you know, I could imagine a world in which I tried to write a little on the side at work or something. And that just was not 
in the cards. It's it's like way too demanding to do both of those things simultaneously. So every day it was like changing gears, you know, like very consciously. Right. Because one hour you're talking with Tim Robinson and Sam Richardson. And then the next you're like, okay, self-care, self-care. What do I yeah. do? For- well, and it's the difference between being a producer and a creator, you know, and like knowing the boundaries. So take a show like Detroiters, like knowing the boundaries of when I'm being giving helpful notes as mm-hmm. someone from the network and, you know, being my own artist. Like, I don't want to uh, unduly give notes from like my taste and like how I write and stuff. I want to strengthen and bolster the voice of the comedian mm-hmm. and, you know, do the best I can on behalf of the network. So it's, there were two very, very different things that I had to keep like very separate from my own sanity. And then of course, when the first book comes out, it comes out in February of 2020. Yeah, <laughs> which which turns out to be a momentous year for everybody, but for you, yeah. it's such a roller coaster ride because you're already yeah. basking in the glow, so to speak, of this first book and all the promotion that goes with it. Yeah, and, and doing that, and then right on the hard on the heels of that comes the pandemic, and then Comedy Central implodes. Yeah, yeah, it was you know it was very difficult for me when Comedy Central imploded because I had been there basically a third of my life. And it was my status symbol identity marker that filled in for having like a pretty shitty childhood, which is basically what by yourself, the fucking lilies is all about is, you know, how do you reparent yourself? If you didn't really have parents who were there for you, how do you become your own parent? Cause I was very unstable and knew that I just needed to do that basic caretaking, but how it's not like an easy endeavor and there is no book for that. Uh, hopefully mine is now a book for that. Um, but Comedy Central pretty quickly, they had just merged with, um, it was Viacom CBS. And there was, so there was a lot up in the air. And I think they might not have, I think they were eventually going to lay everyone off at Comedy Central development anyway. Cause, cause just of where it is now, you know, it hasn't like, it's not like they reinvented it. It's like, you know, I won't. No, it's a, it's a shell of itself. And now Paramount, you know, it's all part of Paramount Global. And everything is kind of a shell of itself. And then, you know, they're talking about selling off BET for parts. Oh, are so, they? Yeah. yeah. So it's. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the only good thing was, uh, was that Lily's had just come out and was successful out the gate. And so I had something else to focus on, but it took me like two years to become comfortable with the idea that I would be a full-time writer because I was so used to having someone else define me, having a job, a role, you know, the writer thing is so amorphous and then you don't have a boss and you're doing it all yourself. So it was a hard multi-year adjustment and I didn't always see it as a blessing. Like I wasn't happy to be laid off. I wasn't thrilled to be moving into this new position not because it wasn't of my own accord. It wasn't like my choice. And it took, it took like two years for me to get okay with, okay, now I'm going to be kind of an entrepreneur and starting my own business around my writing. And now obviously I'm very glad, like this is my dream. But two years ago I was like, uh, should I try to get another job? Like, should I try to be in development somewhere else? It was way more difficult. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's funny to me from the outside lacking the perspective to be like, you didn't, you weren't able to flip that switch immediately and go, Oh no, I'm going to be no. a best selling author 
And Comedy Central will be my side hustle, but I'm really an author now. No, no, not at all. And like, I think it was, they would not have been pleased if, you know, like I was 100% allowed to write Lilies. It was carved out of my deal. Everybody knew it was happening. It was completely above board, but there would have come a moment where I had to choose because now two books in, it's impossible. You cannot Mm -hmm. have another full-time job. You know, I could for Lilies, I could get away from away with it because it was all I could do, mm-hmm. but like I had no choice. But in retrospect, I was stressed out all of the time because I was doing two full time jobs. Uh, like, so it was, I don't recommend it, except um, I think also having the time pressure was helpful in getting mm-hmm. that book out the door. And you also weren't necessarily thinking of a second book. No, right but. But I would say I'd always wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, like I went to school for playwriting. I'd always wanted to be a writer. I was too scared. I always wanted to be a TV writer. I was just terrified to like jump in. I thought it'd be too hard. I'd be poor. Nothing would work. You know, it really took until Lily's being successful that I was at all comfortable uh, with the idea of writing. The fact that you're willing to be open about being vulnerable, right? Mm. To To put pen to paper and say that, even though you had written this book about self-care and even though you were going to all these conferences telling other women and other people that they deserved self-worth, you were still internally struggling. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's at first I was like, ugh, you know, so fire yourself the fucking lilies is how do you gain rituals, stability? How do you reparent yourself? And I was like in an emotional slingshot. I was miserable mostly what i heard in my mind was this diss track of you're unlovable nobody cares about you you're ugly you're never gonna find love you know you're never gonna be successful like i started telling myself i'd never be successful at 25 i was convinced at 25 that nothing was gonna work out um and that turned out like i did the work of lilies i reparented myself and it turned out that um i could change my mental health and i could really help myself And then I got laid off and I was like, oh, wow, there's so much work here left to be done. The job had been a magic trick. Like, look over here. I'm working on Key and Peele and hanging out with David Spade. Look over here. I'm so fancy. But don't look over here at 25 years of complex trauma that I have like was not healthy enough to deal with. I think that was the biggest thing is like I wasn't stable enough to to deal with my bedrock wounds. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that work at the top of the pandemic because I had no choice. Like it, it all came to deal with me, you know, so I had to deal with it. Um, but I had never thought, you know, healing is just not linear and there's no, like your mental health is also not linear. So while I was questioning, you know, should I really come out with another book that says, Oh shoot, I had more work to do. Mm -hmm. But then I just realized this is just way more honest. Like, you you can't, this isn't just a line up of progression. You step back, you fall down. Um, I would be very surprised if I wrote another book in the, like Lilies and Glow to me feel like a, like a progression, even when I'm stepping back. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a third book like that in me. Or if there were, it would have to be like 10 years from now. I, I just, you know, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, I'm I'm laughing because, uh, you know, in entertainment, it's so cliche that that you also have to have a trilogy. 
It has yeah. to be a trilogy. Well, I, <laughs> but so I'm laughing because it's comforting to hear you say, "No, I'm not." I'm well, not I don't want to in, in terms of that because that's also no. I I, I want to write a third book and I have some ideas, but for my own sanity, I don't want to have this much trauma to heal. Like right. And I, and it's not easy to sit in the worst moments of your life and describe them in narrative detail. It was both books were really hard. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to do that. I <laughs> would like some years off of, um, you know, and then it doesn't end there. Then I'm like speaking about these things basically forever. And, but the good thing there is, you know, you're always reworking out things. Like none, like the whole thing is I'm just like, none of this work is ever done. Any kind of journey is like any kind of healing journey is just a many year up and down affair. And the big difference now is the floor beneath me is so much higher. Like I'm so much more resilient about basically everything that things just don't get to me the, the way they used to. So there is a progression in that sense. You know, the, the more work you do, the better you are at doing it, the better you are at recognizing it, the better you are at getting back on the horse because Lord knows I've fallen off many times. Yeah. You're right though, that there's no, there's no graduation ceremony no. for healing where it's like, okay, you're healed. No, no need to worry about any of this ever again for the rest of your life because no. life still continues to happen. And because we're just one part of it, whereas yeah. uh, you like to point out that, you know, we're all stars and that's part yeah. of like, the glow is that we're all stars. Although as a journalist, I like to flip that around and go, stars, they really are just like us. <laughs> they are. Right. They, they really that. are. <laughs> they, I agree with that. they really are just like us. True but, statement. Um, yeah. The, but because of that, we're just one star in the galaxy. So we don't have control over the the chaos that happens. And sometimes that chaos can be frustrating and new. And you're like, how am I in this situation again? Which is why there's a, there's a concept that you mentioned uh, not imposter syndrome, although imposter syndrome is also something I've talked with many comedians about. It's the good enough plateau. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I hadn't, I hadn't heard it expressed that way before, but I've definitely talked and written about the idea that sometimes you can find yourself, sometimes it's easy to know that you're in a rut, but mm-hmm. other times you have no idea because you're just, you've just become so comfortable. Yeah. The way things are that you don't realize, oh, I'm in a rut and I've just yeah. decided to just settle for this because it's less painful than growth. Yeah. I mean, I think we're mostly not great at noticing where we are, whether we're sad. A, a big thing in uh, Glow in the Fucking Dark is even understanding what you're feeling in any given moment is not just something we all inherently do. The very beginning of the book, I made an emotion wheel so that you can see that you have emotions other than good, bad, sad, tired, stressed, which is what my whole existence had been boiled down to, you know, the miracle of life. And I was just tired saying I'm busy all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I don't think we're very particularly good at recognizing the good times, the neutral times, the bad times. Like there's not a lot of self-awareness, at least there wasn't for me in my everyday life. And what I really hadn't seen was I thought that after I did all the work of Lily's, I would have quote unquote done all the work. Like I thought that was gonna be my graduation ceremony. I never have to deal with these things again. I had mostly Mm. dealt with them, 
But no, you you really have never completely dealt with anything. But again, your relationship to it can change dramatically. Yeah, there's unfortunately no graduation ceremony. And yet you're always graduating. If you keep doing it, you're constantly, you know, a way that I would react to something that happened a year, like some, like I was talking to my therapist, uh, my reaction to something that was negative, like a couple weeks ago, was 180% different reaction that I would have had two years ago. You know, now I have so much more um, emotional regulation because the world is so chaotic. Like the, 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 the big thing I've learned is you have to build internal safety. There's no alternative. The world is crazy, will always be crazy. It is always changing. There is no calm. There's n- no permanence of any sort. So your only alternative is to find a place within you that is safe, that is not constantly changing, that is reliable. And once you can do that, I can handle change, disappointment, issues so much better than I ever could before. And also, as you you pointed out, you going on this journey of self-care has also helped awaken something in your father to do the same, right? Oh, yeah. So the end of Lily's my dad and I, after, you know, having a neglectful childhood had been reunited after I helped him, uh, he almost died and he had two brain surgeries and I had to navigate all the medical things because my mom's not in the picture. There were no other adults to help. Very dramatic moment in my life. Um, and so Lily's ends with, okay, my dad's alive. Hooray. And then immediately after, you know, COVID hits mm-hmm. and, you know, I had parented him for so much of my life. Um, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I was just so sick of it, so tired. And so at the beginning of COVID, I stopped talking to him, actually. Like all these families are like coming together. And I was like, nope, I'm not going to talk to my dad. I don't talk to my mom. My sister lives somewhere else. All I'm going to do is focus on trauma therapy, which in retrospect, I'm like, why did I choose the most isolated time <laughs> in history to do this like very hard thing in isolation? But that's right. what I did. And I wasn't talking to him and then COVID hit. And of course my dad's 78. So as soon as COVID hit, I was like, I'm here for you, you know, whatever, put this on hold, peace treaty. uh, I'm here for you. And what I found out was that he had been in therapy for the preceding two years to answer the question, why is my daughter not talking to me? And he was a completely different person you know, like uh, he would tell me he was proud of me. He would thank me for things. He wouldn't be negative about every idea I've ever had. He was, for the first time ever, a real father to me. And I include that in the book, not to say that if you draw a boundary, someone else will change. That is not the what I'm trying to say at all. In fact, uh, I find that you can't you can't make anybody change, right? You could draw whatever boundary you want. That's for you. But you can't make somebody change. The reason I include it in the book and the reason I find it so helpful is just that anyone can change from any age. It's just, it's, uh, you know, we say things like you can't teach an old dog new tricks and that's just lazy, truly. Like that's just not the way it is. And it's not like, you know, I also keep in mind that my experience is not everybody's experience. You know, my life is not so universal that you could plug in anybody. And my dad was, I don't even want to say like exactly what he was, but he was a very different person. And he, once he wanted to change, he did it. 
you know, and I hope that gives a lot of people hope, especially if you read about my dad, that that person who treated me the way they treated me for so long was able to completely turn it around to the point where we have a great relationship now, like a real one. Right. It's great and it's heartwarming and comforting to know that it's possible. Yeah, I hope people, because I think people get hopeless about the oh, definitely their their parents, their friends, their marriage themselves. It doesn't have to be that way. It just really does not. Right. I mean, you started out at the Daily Show being such a people pleaser that you poured all of your heart, time, and energy into a coffee machine. Yeah. And now you're this person who's not just about self care for yourself, but promoting that for other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank God I cleaned that coffee machine though, because that got me my first job at Comedy Central. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it's just, um, I never thought I would be this kind of author necessarily, but, uh, George Saunders, the writer, I am going to butcher his quote, but he says something like, none of us are the writer we want to be. We all have this like shitty little hill, but it's ours, you know? Like it's ours and the truer we can be to whatever is ours, the better. But um, so I always think of that. Like I, this isn't what I saw happening for me and it is where I obviously needed to go and have ended up. Have, have you looked at comedy differently? Yes. How do you, how do you, yeah. So how do you look at comedy differently now? Well, particularly from having been an executive where you're giving notes I, there's like there's like 5,000 notes I would never give now, mm-hmm. you know, that I now recognize is completely unhelpful. Um, and just the way I talk to artists is a lot different because you don't get it. I'm sorry. An executive doesn't get it unless mm-hmm. they've written something and had it torn apart by somebody else. <laughs> I, it's just impossible. Like no shade. Also, Maybe that's good in some ways. Really no shade. Uh, I was that person. But it's really vulnerable to be writing these things. And um, and the artist is always the most vulnerable person on the whole ladder. They're usually paid the least. The writers are treated the worst. and But they make the thing. Like the whole thing they make. Yes, there are executives helping. Yes, you know, it has to be executed. Yes, to all these things. But the idea, the concept, the words, what what brings it to life that anyone would care to watch it? That's the writer. And now in my experience, I even see stupid things like um, when a writer is paid, like when business affairs actually cuts the check for after the deal closes. If you're a writer, uh, that's horrible. Like I never thought about it from that point of view that we weren't paying the writers um, timely enough Mm-hmm. Maybe timely enough for Viacom, you know, for a big company that's just like, oh, we pay vendors. It's no big deal. But nobody's ever thinking about the life of that one individual. So, yeah, my whole perspective is completely changed. And I guess it's not comedy uh, exclusive. It's just entertainment, like, has completely changed. Right. So we could see you on the picket lines with the when the guild goes on strike. Yeah, probably <laughs> at, at this point. Yeah, for sure. There was this old notion of comedians using the stage as therapy. Mm -hmm. And more recently, I've seen more and more comedians instead be on stage talking about being in therapy, Mm -hmm. which is a completely different concept. And I wonder what you what you think of that notion. Yeah, it is an 
when right before my book was going to come out, somebody in comedy said, well, you don't want your book to be public therapy. You know, like you don't want to share too much. Mm-hmm. And I remember just flagging that in my head as something weird. Like, why would storytelling be called public therapy? And I think there was just a lot more of a stigma even three years ago about talking about anxiety, depression, even within comedy, where, you know, there are many. I, I also really dislike the idea that all comedians must be a little like crazy or dark to be a comedian. I think that's so messed up, so limiting. I also reject the idea of the starving, struggling artist who has to have a problem or an addiction in order to be deep. I really don't like those things and you know in entertainment there many people are struggling with mental health issues just as in any industry and so I think what I'm seeing like I'm thinking of like Taylor Tomlinson who Mm. is she's just open she's not like not in a you're not hearing her work out her problems she's making jokes about them jokes about that experience yeah she's not trauma dumping no yeah which I've never seen, I can't think of a comedy I've seen recently where they're just like dumping. I do know friends who do that, (laughs) you know, and, and for sure, maybe it, you know, but like not on, not a polished comedy set. Have I seen that's just like, let me throw your, my woe at you as opposed to, I have a take on this and here's my take. Here's my, um, you know, it's the famous uh, Nora Ephron quote, everything is copy. So I, I see it as just in that vein. Like once mm-hmm. you've got any perspective on your own mental health, it, it just your copy, like your content, you can do whatever you want with it. Well, Tara Schuster, I'm uh, in awe of you mm-hmm. and your and your copy. And, Thank I'm, you. uh, and I'm so uh, I feel privileged and grateful that I've been able to watch you on your glow up. Oh, thank you, Sean. That's so kind. And it's it's funny, yeah, to have known you all these years in different um, capacities. It's kind of crazy. So thank you so much for having me. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.